for the love of goats. We are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here's Deborah Neiman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. This is going to be a particularly timely episode if you're listening to it as soon as it drops, because kidding season is fast approaching. And today we are going to be talking about pregnancy toxemia or ketosis with Dr. Robert Van Son, a professor of veterinary science and extension veterinarian at Pennsylvania State University. And if you've listened to the show before, you've probably heard Dr. Van Son before talk about other nutritional topics related to goats. Welcome back, Dr. Van Son. Thanks. Glad to be back again. This is a really great topic right now. I thought about it because I've been starting to get a lot of questions from people about pregnancy toxemia or ketosis. First, can you just talk about the name? We hear pregnancy toxemia and ketosis used pretty much interchangeably. Are they really the same thing? And why two different names? Okay, so that's a good point. You know, pregnancy toxemia is sort of the kind of end stage. Pregnancy toxemia is a disease or, or ketosis is a two-stage disease. There's an early stage where we have an opportunity to intervene and help those does through the rest of their pregnancy. Whereas once they get into the toxemic stage, it's, it's not a very pretty picture, you know, where we're either going to lose the kids, lose the doe, or lose both. So let's go back a little bit. So where the term ketosis comes from is we have to understand how pregnancy, how the dough provides nutrients to the developing fetus or fetuses that she's carrying. The primary energy is burned by the fetus through glucose. And so the dough has to provide glucose in her blood to the fetus. Now, we know that blood glucose in our ruminant animals, they naturally have a low blood glucose content. So if we think about blood glucose, our blood glucose, hopefully, is like less than 100 milligrams per deciliter. And if we think about dogs and cats and and many other species, that's about the same, somewhere between 85 and 110 uh, milligrams per deciliter. However, ruminant animals, normal, healthy ruminant animals will maintain a blood glucose down around 45 to, to maybe 80. And so this is because when we eat, you know, sugar, sweet treat or something, we can digest and absorb that glucose directly. And so we maintain a a fairly high blood glucose. In a ruminant animal, the bacteria in the rumen ferment that glucose. And so no glucose really comes down to the small intestine to get digested. And so this is a compensatory mechanism of ruminants as they evolved into their ecological niche in life. And so where glucose comes from in ruminants is one of the end products of fermentation in the rumen is a a three carbon compound called propity. So we we talk about the volatile fatty acids. There's three volatile fatty acids. One is acetate, which is two carbons. 
perpineate, which I said is three, and ambuterate, which is four. Only perpineate can be converted by the dough's liver to the compound glucose. So she has to make her own glucose. And that process is called gluconeogenesis. Now the fetus, they have the capacity, they have the enzymes that can do that. But for whatever reason, mother nature decided the fetus's uh, ability to make glucose is shut down. And the reason probably is, is the fetus, if it could use substrate to make glucose, it could grow much faster than maybe mom or, you know, exceed mom's capacity to, to handle that, you know, because the, the growth of the fetus is going to be dependent on how many nutrients it gets from mom. So all that being said, glucose is only transported across the placenta into the fetus through a concentration gradient. So that means if mom goes glucose deficient, fetus goes glucose deficient. So that doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, in terms of survival of the species and, and ensuring that. But what mom does is she starts to mobilize body fat. And so what mom does in the late stages of pregnancy is she actually stops or reduces her secretion of the hormone insulin, which helps her tissues use glucose so that more glucose is available to the fetus and in place of burning glucose, she starts to burn fat. Well, depending on stress factors, intake capacity, which is a function of forage quality and, and many other factors, mom may not consume enough. And so her energy needs may not be met by what she's consuming. And as a result, she's going to mobilize more and more body fat. The liver processes all that body fat, but the liver can't break down all the fat into just carbon dioxide and water like other tissues. It makes a compound called a ketone body. And when ketone bodies accumulate to excess, that initiates a state of what we call ketosis. And so that's the disease ketosis. So we talk about in humans, pregnancy ketoacidosis. And so Excess ketone bodies can result in suppression of the immune system. It can result in acidosis, blood acidosis. And this is what gets the dough ultimately into what we call a toxemic state. Okay. So basically the dough first gets ketosis. And then if that goes untreated, then she becomes. She gets into a more serious stage. Yes. Okay. That's good to know. I had a feeling those two words did not mean the same thing, even though people use them interchangeably all the time. Yeah. So what can people do to prevent this from happening? Yeah. So we're actually doing a project right now looking at pregnancy toxemia in dose. And obviously the first thing is the feeding of the dough. We know that, as I just explained, for the bugs in the rumen to make more propionate, they make more propionate by fermenting carbohydrates like grains, like starches. So this is why we often recommend, you know, towards late gestation, starting to add some grain to the diet to help them produce more propionate and make sure that the energy intake of the dough 
is adequate to meet her needs so that she doesn't have to mobilize so much body fat and get into the beginnings of this ketosis process. So the two things that are important are, one, recognizing how many fetuses the doe has, because the more fetuses she has, the higher the energy demand she's going to have. And as I'll get into, the less she's going to be able to eat. You know, when you look at a doe that's got twins or triplets in her, you almost have to laugh in terms of how does she even walk, you know, with the immense size of her body. And, and if you were able to look inside her, her uterus is taking up most of her abdomen. And so the rumen where she's fermenting all her feed and processing all of her nutrients is very limited in space. And this has been shown, you know, historically in terms of intake capacity. Now, she could eat a lot of grain, but if we do that, we can cause rumen acidosis, which we don't want to do, and we're afraid of that. But really, the biggest and most important issue is the quality of hay that she gets. And so a very low-quality, highly mature grass hay is very inappropriate for these late pregnant does. You might want to be switching to alfalfa hay to get a little bit extra protein get an extra calcium so that we don't get the secondary hypocalcemia or milk fever issues and something that's a little more digestible or a really high quality grass hay. But we certainly got to be adding some grain to her diet to uh, meet that glucose needs. So dietary formulation, forage quality is the number one thing. Beyond that, in terms of prevention is just monitoring and managing those animals well. So the first thing we want to be wary of is body condition score. So if, if people understand body condition, you know, we can grade animals in a scale of one to five with half scores. And that's based on how much fat is in the subcutaneous tissues. In other words, how hard is it to find the bony prominences of the skeleton, you know? And the reason we're concerned about that is overly fat animals, which is very common in many of our show goats and in our uh, meat style goats. When an animal is overly fat, you know, it has a body condition score four plus uh, on up to five, that actually suppresses her, her intake. Her intake will go down faster during late pregnancy than an animal that's in thinner condition. And so that puts her into greater what we call negative energy balance. And that's going to mobilize more fat. And since she's really fat, she's got all kinds of fat to mobilize. So those animals get into a very severe disease consequence called fatty liver disease or hepatic lipidosis. So if somebody has a goat that is overweight, I actually just got this question a couple of days ago. Somebody has a doe that's like got bred a month ago and she's very, it sounds like obese. And this woman's like, what can I do to prevent toxemia? And I'm kind of like, uh, right now, uh, well, you can't put her on a diet. You know, you just have to feed her really good quality grass hay. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that's a real challenge. This has been a big issue in the, the dairy industry with fatty liver disease and so on. 
not so much with the ketosis during pregnancy with dairy cows, it's more ketosis during early lactation because of the excess milk and high milk production and the glucose loss to milk. You know, we found that overly fat animals uh, during that late dry period, as I just mentioned, reduce their intake. But if we try and cause body weight reduction in those animals, we actually cause more problems. So we need to recognize that overly fat and overly thin animals are, are what we call special need animals in the pregnancy. Uh, they both can actually get into uh, ketosis and pregnancy toxemia. For overly fat animals, to me, what I want to do so I want to try and feed them just to the energy needs that they need. I don't want them to gain any more uh, body condition. I don't want them to really lose body condition, but I'm probably going to increase the protein because it seems protein helps us manage ketosis, you know, because amino acids can be used for glucose production and amino acids are necessary for transport and movement of fatty acids. So when they mobilize that, they don't get caught up in the liver, the liver can export them out. So I'm going to be much more cognizant of uh, protein levels in the diet, probably going to be pushing closer to 15% crude protein rather than 12 or, or 11 for those overly fat animals. On the thin animals, we're probably going to feed them to, to maybe gain a little bit of weight to, to make sure they got enough reserves to, to make it through the early lactation period. And again, probably feed them a little more protein to make sure they have those resources. We don't want to stress these girls. I mean, we don't want to be uh, changing or moving them anywhere. We don't want to be regrouping them in a way, you know, any kind of social stressors. We want to make sure that our, our feeding practices are very consistent. There's not any gaps. Hopefully we don't get any severe winter storms during you know, that process, because that can knock some of these animals off feed. And that's the trigger that starts this whole process. So body condition management of the animal, stress management, and then the diet, as I said, is the number one thing. The other thing, of course, is very good observation. We know that these overly fat animals, as they start to enter into ketosis, they start to to stock up in their legs. It looks like they get edema in their legs and they almost start to breathe heavy and they, they look like they have respiratory signs. And so don't discount that as just uh, maybe some early pneumonia because it's cold or something like that. That could actually be the early signs of pregnancy toxemia. The other thing is if, if these does start to separate themselves off and not come up to the feed bunk and aren't aggressive at the feed bunk or anything like that. That's one of the first behavioral signs that something's going wrong. Now, what we're doing in our project is many people may know that if you, if, especially if you were type two diabetic or something, you prick your finger and you can, you know, use a little meter and, and test your glucose concentration. Well, we have a project that's ongoing right now where we are using those handheld meters for people and testing. There's two types of strips we can use. There's a glucose strip so we can measure blood glucose. And then there's a beta hydroxybutyrate strip, which is a ketone body. That's the predominant ketone body that we can measure. And so our preliminary work has 
for the most part, validated that we can use these test strips on goats to identify when they are heading into trouble with ketosis or if their blood glucose is going low. It seems that goats maintain a really low beta-hydroxybutyrate or ketone level into pregnancy, much lower than what a typical cow would do. But then if their blood glucose drops, and we're not quite sure which level it, it needs to drop to, but that seems to be the trigger that really initiates this overwhelming metabolic change that heads them down this ketosis pregnancy toxemia path. So we're trying at this point to collect lots of blood samples testing and validating, continuing to validate the use of the meter, but now trying to find what values are the values that are necessary that would suggest, hey, we need to do something with this dough before she gets worse. Okay. I was curious how exactly how common ketosis is or toxemia, because we've had 700 kids now, we've had eight sets of quintuplets, and knock on wood, we've never had a case of this. So that kind of makes me wonder, like, is it really that common or is it kind of a perfect storm with it's more than just lots of kids or just a doe that was underweight? Like, does it usually need to be two or three of those things to put all these wheels in motion? Well, again, it's going to depend a lot on the feeding program of the animal. That's the biggest player. When we look at the published literature from all over, from Greece, from Spain, and, and so on, the average pregnancy toxemia prevalence are, you know, what percent of animals in a herd would come down with it? It's generally in that, you know, somewhere between five and seven percent. We've collected a hundred and some samples, and we have six cases. So we're, we're right in at, you know, maybe a little less than 6%. However, if, you know, somebody has a bad situation, their, their forage quality is not what they thought it was and, and any other stressors like you described, we could have a disastrous situation where you might have 20, 25%. I know a practitioner that I've worked with who's a uh, has a fairly large uh, sheep and goat practice in California. She had one herd where I think almost 60% of the does in, on this farm were having pregnancy toxemia problems. Wow. That definitely makes me think that environment and stress and diet play a really big part in that. Then if you see it so high in some herds, and like, knock on wood again, non-existent in my herd. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, that's what everybody wants to do because, I mean, this can be a very devastating disease and it only takes a couple uh, blocks to kind of unstabilize the process and end up having a big metabolic wreck. Yeah. And I know it's, it is a very stressful thing. Like you have to be watching the dough like a hawk yep. once you know she's got a problem and then you have to be ready to like induce or do a C-section really fast in, in some cases. Right. Well, in those cases, and that's, I guess the point in those cases where the, the veterinarian with the diagnostics is suggesting 
uh, either a C-section or induction, you know, depending on where she is in the stage of her pregnancy, you know, that's suggesting that things are getting too far. We want to catch things earlier than that. That's what we're trying to do with the mm-hmm. study is, you know, some work out of the UK and over in Europe and Greece suggests that a ketone level of 0.8 is that threshold. And that's 0.8, what's called a millimoles per liter. That seems to be sort of a a common threshold that many researchers have used to suggest that those does are in what we call subclinical stages. You know, so that's where we come in. We can try and better feed that dough, or we could drench her with some propylene glycol that can be converted to glucose and, you know, things like that to uh, help her recover and, and regain stability in her glucose metabolism before she gets into a more serious uh, situation. There are a lot of people who um, have asked in the past if there's something that they can use that's more natural than propylene glycol. And I know there's recipes out there on the internet for that sort of thing. But then I've also heard that um, not every type of sugar is going to be properly absorbed by a dough who is in ketosis. So can you talk about that a little bit? Is there like honey, maple syrup, corn syrup? Is there anything else that's appropriate? Well, the the problem with uh, many of those things is, you know, you're providing the sugar, but remember what we said earlier is that sugar is going to get fermented by the bacteria, you know, so uh, that's not doing anything different than what the propylene glycol is, you know, that the question there is whether or not are the sugars, like all the sugars that are out there, we know that there's five carbon sugars and and six carbon sugars and things like that. Some of those sugars don't get converted to propylene, which means they're not converted back into glucose for the animal. So that's what we got to be careful of. White caro syrup, can be absorbed in the mouth. So that's a good one. You can get some glucose into, into an animal. We use that in like, you know, baby pigs that are glucose deficient because of poor milk production by the sow or something. They'll absorb white caro syrup directly uh, just right in the mouth. But, you know, I don't know the sugar types like in honey, and I, I'd even be more concerned about maple syrup in terms of maybe having sucrose-based sugar types in there. And and that's not going to help necessarily with the production of propionate to uh, be used for glucose production in in the dough. So if a dough is going off feed, she's kind of off by herself, you've checked her urine and she's spilling ketones in her urine then the next step would be what? Okay, so that the next step is going to be trying to entice her to eat some more. All right, so if it has to do with forage quality, maybe bringing in some alfalfa hay, adding a little more grain or feeding smaller grain amounts more often throughout the day. The other thing, vitamin B12, Injections could help that help stimulate appetite, plus vitamin B12 is an essential coenzyme 
in the production of glucose by the liver. So um, we use that a fair amount in uh, ketosis cases in dairy cows. Trying to, you know, I, I guess you got to know the dough and her behavior. And one way I would think about maybe isolating her and, you know, hand feeding and so on. But if she is a real social creature and you know, she gets more upset by being separated from the other does that might make matters worse. So you got to gauge that. But, you know, I would prefer it at watching her and um, feeding her and, and having a better handle on what she's actually eating than just sort of leave her in with the other does. And you know, she's got to fight with those, you know, for food or anything like that. Okay. And then if you can't entice her to eat, then that's when you would start with the propylene glycol? Yeah, you can do propylene glycol drenching. You know, uh, you can mix up a little bit of propylene glycol, about two ounces or so. You could add water to it. You could even add some B vitamins to it and things like that. And you don't have to tuber to do it. That's okay if you're comfortable with that. But, you know, you might be able to kind of just put it in the, the side pocket of her mouth there in her cheek area and, and let her drink it down or something. Uh, so it's not so traumatic and you're, you're stressing her out during that process, like passing a, you know, a stomach tube down or something. Right. And then somebody else asked me this recently too. Like, is there a maximum time limit that you should give propylene glycol, like five or six days or 10 days when you say, no, that's too much too long. Yeah. So, um, propylene glycol in excess can cause problems in the rumen with the rumen bugs. So we don't want to overdose. All right. So, uh, generally if these does don't respond well within three days, then I'm going to be looking at some other options. I'll go as long as five days if she's responding and I might keep it up for two more days, but I generally don't think you need to go beyond that. If, if you do, then something else is wrong and you might want to come in and, you know, have the veterinarian administer some uh, glucose solution or something along those lines. Okay. Intravenously. Okay. And then at what point do you decide that it's time to induce a dough or do a C-section? Well, that might, you know, the things that we'll be looking at is when these does go into what I'll call the, the end stage uh, pregnancy toxemia, they become dehydrated. So we could uh, base it off of a blood test, looking at pack cell volume or, or just their mucous membranes and things like that. They also become acidotic. And so uh, urinary function is going to be uh, reduced. And again, if some blood work is done, they would indicate like a, the anion gap or total carbon dioxide is going to be off. But again, a lot of people don't like to, to spend the money on those things. And they can't be done right there by the animal other than the glucose and the um, beta-hydroxybutyrate. So I would look at those, and if that glucose starts dropping below, say, 30, she's going to need to either be rid of those fetuses or, or something. And that's the challenge. Now, there is some work out of Portugal from a, an old graduate student colleague of mine where they found blood glucose actually goes up 
to really high levels in late pregnancy toxemia. And their supposition there is that indicates that the fetuses have died and they're no longer sucking the glucose out of mom. And that's why her blood glucose goes up. And that hasn't been proven extremely well yet, but it's an interesting thing. So again, you know, a really high blood glucose probably is one that would suggest a stronger intervention, more invasive process to, to intervene there. Oh, that's really fascinating. This whole conversation has been really interesting. And I think this is going to be really helpful for a lot of people. I know it's something that a lot of people really worry about, Mm -hmm. but it sounds like every time you're on here, we wind up saying the same thing. If you get the nutrition, right, everything kind of falls into place. (laughs) And, and, you know, again, that reinforces why, even though I went on and and did my veterinary degree and thought I was going to go out and, and help animals, but I didn't get taught the nutrition. And once I was out in the field and saw what was going on, I realized that nutrition was really the most essential part of veterinary medicine because we want to prevent the diseases. And it all comes back to starting off with good nutrition. Yeah, that is so true. Is there anything else uh, about ketosis or toxemia that you wanted to talk about today? You know, it's a devastating disease and we certainly have to be very cautious. I did a a webinar Tuesday night uh, for extension on uh, reading your, your forage report. So, you know, what I would encourage everybody to do is, you know, think about spending the money. It's not excessive, but especially for whatever forage you might be, you know, feeding your pregnant does here as we're getting ready for kidding season. And if the neutral detergent fiber or NDF content of that hay is above, you know, say 55%, that's probably a forage she can't eat. We want to see the neutral detergent fiber in the, uh, the late pregnant doe diet, uh, somewhere is in that 45 to, to 50% range. So if they're kidding uh, later March or something, or even early March, we're right now starting to get into that critical intake capacity where those does just can't eat all of that fiber and keep it in their rumen because the, the uterus is taking up too much space. Right. Well, thank you so much. This has all been really interesting. And I think it's going to be really helpful for a lot of people, hopefully help people sleep a little better at night too. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. To see show notes, you can always visit fortheloveofgoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash love goats podcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.